Thanks for listening to the Movement Church Podcast. Movement is located in Newport, Kentucky, and you're always welcome to join us on a Sunday morning at 1030. Hope you enjoy this podcast. Here in person and then also uh, there online with us as well. So I'm just really glad that you guys are here. And today we're going to be continuing uh, this series on the Sermon on the Mount. And if we haven't met, my name is Josh Tandy. And what we do here at Movement Church is we exist to help people find and follow Jesus. And what we have in the Sermon on the Mount is a countercultural way of doing life where Jesus lays out a very different, a very unexpected in that time and today as to how we're supposed to live. Okay, because here's the thing. I think left to our own devices, we go down a bad path. We go down a path that's, that's really focused on ourselves. And in a, in a goofy way to explain this or point this out or, or kind of trivial way, but also ridiculous ways to think about the selfie stick. You know, I, I've made fun of the selfie stick before, and I don't know if any of you have a selfie stick at home. Maybe you haven't used it for a while, or, or maybe there online you have that, and, and you love it that you can get a picture of all your family, and you get the best background or whatever it might be. But, but in fact, there's, like a, there's a danger in the selfie culture. I think it was last year there was a family here that was at the Grand Canyon. Uh, they took a summer, summer trip out there, and, uh, and, uh, and there was like the week before, there was someone who had tragically passed away because they were trying to get a good shot, and they fell over the edge. And there was all these signs up and all that. And in fact, between 2011 and 2017, there was this big academic study, which you know is like, man, this is ridiculous. We're looking at selfies. But between that time, there were 258 people worldwide who tragically passed away as they were trying to get a picture of themselves or of themselves and others. In fact, there was, a, there was a warning that a park system had to put out, like, don't try to get a selfie with a bear, which, you know, maybe if we're going down that road, maybe there's something else going on. Maybe if one of the selfie and the bear, maybe it would be something else that would, you know, tragically end your life. Or, or, or there was this, you know, you can't just kind of get on the precipice of this cliff, whether it be the Grand Canyon or somewhere else. Zoos had to talk about those fences. They are there for a reason. Don't climb the fences just to get a good shot with you and one of the animals there. It's funny, but it's real. It's real because I think it says something about our desire to be the, the center of this, right? The center of the story, to be the star. You know, when we tell a story, rarely do we make ourselves out to be the villain. Rarely do we point out our own flaws in the story. We point out our best intentions. We point out what we are trying to do, how we were really in the right. Now, I think there's a time and a place to, to take a selfie. It can be a fun thing. It can be a kind of a way to say, I'm doing this. Isn't this cool? Or this will be a way of saying, I'm a part of this larger thing. That could be a great thing. I'm not saying they're out and out bad, but I think what they do is they, they kind of belial, speak to some of that nature that we have where it's just all about us. There was this article in Outdoor Magazine, and Catherine Miles talked about how this, 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 this desire to make it all about ourselves. She says this, says this is exactly what happens when we take a selfie. Our attention is focused on the camera and the shot, not where we are placing our feet or what's around us. We literally have no idea that we are about to step off a cliff or tumble over a waterfall. Put another way, we don't intend to engage in risky behavior. We just don't realize we've wandered into that realm until it's too late. Think about it this way. When we make things about ourselves, 
When we have that selfish bent, no one sets out and tries to do that, right? No one says, wakes up one morning and says, I'm going to be a self-centered jerk. No one says, I'm going, to, I'm going to ignore those around me. I'm going to make this all about myself. But we don't even realize what we're doing. We don't realize how toxic that can be. It's not, it's not because we have these malicious intents. It's just kind of how we move forward. It's how we live. It's what we tend to do. Because ultimately, I believe this. We are beings created to worship something. We are created to worship something. We are created to come together, to celebrate things, to, to look on things and say, that is good. I want to be a part of that. I want to celebrate that. All of that is good. But we take those good things and we elevate them and put them in a place where only God can be. And this is one of the things that Jesus warns us of in the Sermon on the Mount. So let me review so, thus far what's happening in this teaching, this sermon, and in this series that we've been talking about it. At the start, we have the Beatitudes. These are, are kind of these quick sayings, these quick descriptions of what it would be like if you are part of the movement of God, if you are part of this Jesus way, this new kingdom. It's kind of waking us up to something else that's going on. Then he talks about things that are commonplace every day, things like salt and light. He says salt is this thing that preserves. It fights against the rot. It's a defensive thing. And then light is this offensive weapon that illuminates what's going on around you and that we have to, we have to use that in our lives. Then he said, I'm going to give you some examples of what it means to be salt and light. And he said that we need to be salt because we need to make sure that our anger doesn't grow and blossom because anger and hatred in our heart is really the same as murder. He says in the same way that lust is just the same as adultery, that the thought and what's going on inside is the same as the act itself in God's eyes. He talked about that we need to be light by, by being creative in our resistance against evil, against oppressive things, about things that dehumanize others and that turn the other cheek language is really this beautiful and brilliant creative way of really taking the sting out of the oppression taking the sting out of the hatred and now he's going to go on he's going to continue to talk about how we live out our faith and he's going to talk about some really fundamental ways that we would follow Jesus, the ways that we, we would be faithful. He's going to talk about giving, he's going to talk about praying, he's going to talk about fasting. And notice that in this, and I'm going to read this section for you, notice how the hypocrites, the teachings here, the hypocrites are the villains, but they are doing things by the book. Notice that it appears that, that we kind of naturally allow ourselves to uh, to make it about us, to make the story about us. So we're going to look at Matthew chapter 6, and we're going to read a, a good portion of it, but we're going to start in Matthew chapter 6, where Jesus gets in this idea of what are we talking about? How do we be salt and light? How do we be faithful followers of Jesus? How do we live in this alternative cultural, countercultural way as we follow Jesus using some of the basic things that a faithful person would do? Jesus says this in chapter 6, verse 1. Jesus says, be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets, to be honored by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full, but when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. And yes, I practice in the mirror. This is my left hand, this is my right hand. How many times have you seen people do that, mix up their left and right Verse 5, 
Jesus goes on, he says, and when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full, but when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you, and when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, something that us pastors need to be aware of, we can't be babbling, right? Says, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. And then Jesus is going to go on and give a model for prayer. We're going to skip that for now and come back to it later. And if we go down to verse 16, it says, When you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show others they are fasting. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face so that it will not be obvious to others that you are fasting, but only to your Father who is unseen, and your Father who sees what is done is secret will reward you. So we have these three big examples, right? These three big examples of what a hypocrite would do, what a hypocrite would do that would be seen publicly and is being done for that purpose, being done so that people would pay attention, say, look at this person, look how faithful they are. And if you look at that, they're doing the things that the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, would command, right? They're commanding that they are are supposed to be there, they're supposed to be giving, they're supposed to be generous to the needy. That's that's a good thing, right? And and Jesus says that we're not supposed to display our public actions. We're not supposed to put that on on out there for others because it could be seen as a judgment. He says when we pray, we, we, we shouldn't pray standing up in the synagogues or the church or the gathering of the people or not on the street corners in public. And that when we fast, we shouldn't act like it's so terrible that we're having a hard, hard time. Now, if you're a follower of Jesus, or even if you're not, you know that there is an issue with Christians being hypocritical, right? You know that there's those tropes that exist for a reason, those stereotypes that are there for a reason of Christians who do one thing but say something else. Those Christians who are vindictive, who are mean, who are judgmental, who are stingy, whatever you want to talk about, there is an issue here, right? There's an issue of, of Christians not being genuine. Maybe for you, it's the, the people who have betrayed you, the people who have hurt you, the people who gossiped about you, who turned you away, the people whose relationship with them has been destroyed. And so many of those people are Christians. And some of the nastiest conflicts I've ever encountered have been among Christians, right? It's been in church board meetings and, and conversations afterwards and phone calls and different things like that after the fact over, over relatively trivial things. I've seen families break down and stop talking to each other. I've seen churches split, go their separate ways. I even one time in a church basketball league had to pull one pastor off another pastor because he was going to hit him in the face. Like I, I've seen this go bad, right? But this idea that these hypocritical Christians... It's an obvious thing. It's an obvious thing because, because of course we are hypocrites. I know I am. I know that in so much of my life, I don't act like, I don't live like I really believe. I, I know in so much of my life, I act as though I don't, I don't believe. And for, for me, this usually plays out with something I call and something my wife calls the scarcity mindset. This idea that there's not enough, whatever that enough might be, whether it's finances or time or, or whatever, 
There's not enough. We can't do this because we can't. But we serve the God who created the world, the God who's the who's abundant and wants to bless us, the God who is giving and is so life-giving, so loving. We, we serve the God of generosity. I, I think about in the last few weeks, I, I would think to myself, well, we, we can't do X. We can't do church the way we typically do because so many people are understandably staying home, and, but then there's so many people who understandably want to come in person, and, and what's the right thing there? And I'll say, well, we can't do that because we can't. Or, or, or I'll say this, I feel like God is calling us to do something, calling me to do something big, something, something, something bold, some sort of generous thing, some sort of big act where it's, where it's all about God. I said, well, I can't do that because we would upset things. I think so often I have that scarcity mindset. I say in my own way, I make this about myself when I say, I can't because I can't. And I think God's saying, what do you have to do with it? What do you have to do with it? Because, of course, generosity could turn into a hypocritical behavior. Look, look at me. Look how generous I am, right? Look, look, at, look at how generous I am to those around me. I, I, I think about this story from where I went to college. I went to Anderson University in Indiana. And, and there was a joke that was made a lot. And I, this is probably everywhere in different, different sorts of situations where if someone donates a bunch of money to an institution, a college, a hospital, what have you, they don't donate money for a renovation, right? They donate to get the new building to get their name on it, right? And we would joke about that, and we'd say, well, this, this building's falling down, but a good thing they built that new one because they got the donor check. And someone said, well, do you know about the arts building? I said, I, I don't know the story behind that. And it was, I don't even remember the name of the building, but it was some unknown. I didn't know who that person was. And they said, well, actually, that building was built, the big donor there was Charles Schultz, the Peanuts guy, Charlie Brown, the comic strip writer. And I said, well, why isn't the Schultz or the Charlie Schultz uh, uh, Arts Building. Why is it this other name? He says, because that was, that, that was Charles Schultz's Sunday school teacher. That was her name. And I always think about that. What a, what a beautiful way to look at generosity, right? What a beautiful way to look at that. Because, of course, generosity could become a hypocritical thing. I, I think about how when Jesus talks about fasting here, you know, the idea of fasting, of going without, usually food, but whatever it might be of going without, is a way to kind of declare, to remind ourselves that we are dependent on God, that we need God for sustenance. We need God to provide. And by going without, we are reminded that, man, I am pretty low without God. I am in need, right? So fasting, particularly in this time, was the way to declare how pious you were, how faithful you were. And so, of course, they would, they would kind of play it up, right? They would play it up. In our terms, maybe they would, they would just kind of they would walk around in their pajamas, and they wouldn't, they wouldn't do anything to get ready for the day, and they would just sit on the couch and lay in the corner and moan and, and groan and complain about just man, how tired they are or how hungry they were and how faithful they were to give those things up. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. Do it in a way where people won't even know what you're doing because we want to be pointing the attention not to ourselves, but to God. Because by giving, by praying, by fasting, in all of these ways, we are getting the focus on worship of God, not worship of ourselves. We get the audience to focus in on God, not on ourselves. Because one of the grand themes of the Bible, if you want to summarize the Bible in a couple short sentences, one of those sentences would be that, the, that, that God is God, but we are not. 
That God is God and we are not. We don't read the story of God. We don't read this, this incredible story to find out how much strength we have as individuals. We don't read it to, to be enlightened in some, some sort of moral ethic about what we're supposed to do. We're not, we're not doing this to figure out how we can be uh, uh, disciplined enough to love a certain way, to live a certain way, and somehow discover what God wants. You know, what we see is that God is powerful and loving enough to work through us to accomplish His purposes. See, think about it this way. You and I are broken, right? You and I are, are, are a mess. Like, we can't figure this out. We continue to make some of the same mistakes over and over again. And God's big plan is that he's going to redeem us and use us. See, the Bible, the Bible isn't this self-help book to fire us up. I don't know about you, but I've got some self-help books on my shelf. And I'll read it. And I'll say, that's a great thing. That'll help me be so much more efficient. Or that'll help me lose weight. And, and I'll read it. And then I'll never look at it again. And I'll never apply anything ever again. Or, or, or we'll read this, read this Bible and we'll think about, man, and we'll see all these great things for us to take on and, and figure out. But if you, I promise you this. If you read the Bible, you're not going to find any list of individual rights. You're not going to find anything that you're owed. When you read the Bible, you're going to quickly find out that you don't deserve this. There's not something inherent that you have this just because you exist. But what we see is we get God's love. We get the closeness of God, that relationship. Not because we have deserved it or earned it in any way, but we have been given this. In fact, I I think it's interesting that you read the Bible, there's no real promise that things are going to go well for us in this life. In fact, it's the exact opposite. That we should expect persecution. That we should expect that, that, that life would go poorly for us. We should expect that life would be a challenge, that there would be obstacles I think so often we, we forget our real place because we've made ourselves the star of the show. Because what we read in this Bible, what we read is, is a story of brokenness, of humans over and over and over again screwing things up. You will find faithful people really and truly being persecuted. You will find the weak exploited. You will see the way that sin destroys. But you'll also find that things are being made right. You'll find that, that God loves us so much that he shows up, that he comes to us and says, this is how it looks. This is how you're supposed to live. This is how you are supposed to go through life. And this is how different it is. And you'll see that the most crushing, the most ridiculous and painful and unjust thing imaginable that Jesus, if you take faith out of it, was just this incredible teacher, this humble person who gave, who healed, did all these things, right? He was executed as a political prisoner of all things, somehow a threat to the empire because of the power that he had. And he was tortured and he was executed as a common criminal in so many respects. What a a horrible, horrible thing. And if the story ended right there, this would be the tragedy of all tragedies, but thankfully it doesn't. That Jesus walks out of that tomb. This is the miracle. This is the restitution. This is when things are being made right, happened with Jesus, and when we have that promise for ourselves. So when you say yes to that, 
when you say that I believe in this Jesus, whether it's for the first time or the thousandth time, whether it's that everyday practice of us returning back to those basics, those incredibly important things, or whether for the first time that light bulb goes off and we realize that this Jesus is true, that this Jesus is real, and that my life needs to be about this. We experience this. We experience this change. That God gives us a purpose. That God gives us this purpose and this meaning. And we get to hold on to this hope of the promise where Jesus says at the end, when Jesus comes back, he's going to say there's going to be no more pain, no more tears, no more division, no more anger, no more bitterness. And he's going to make all things new. So Jesus announces this. And he's telling us all these things about how we're supposed to live and how different it is from what, they, what you've come to expect. And right here in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus teaches us how to pray. And I know growing up, before I read Scripture, my mom helped me memorize the Lord's Prayer. And it was something that was foundational for us. And I've had a lot of different understandings of the Lord, Lord's Prayer through the years. And as I've, I've, I've grown, experienced new things, and things look differently. But what I do when I come back to the Lord's Prayer over and over again is I see this is a model for us. This is a model for us to pray. So let's look at this together. In Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 through 15, Jesus says this, This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. If we could, can we go back to that first slide of this, the first slide of the Lord's Prayer? If we look how it starts, this is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven. I read that and I think, man, look how close we are to God. Our understanding that we should be connected to God. That God is the ultimate perfect father. God isn't your great dad. God isn't your absent dad on earth. God isn't your okay dad sometimes. God is the perfect father. But then look at the second line that follows that. Look at the line that follows that. We miss this. He says, hallowed be your name. And those two lines, we have the closeness of God, but also the bigness of God. The reverence. We have the familiar, we have the mysterious. We have the close and the unknowable. I think we have the loving and the terrifying. Because if you haven't sat down and considered the bigness of God, the purity of God, the love and the justice of God, and you haven't shuddered just a little bit, not necessarily out of fear, like you're afraid of God, but an awe, and a wonder. Our prayers should start that way. Second, notice this as we go down. We'll leave it there on that slide. There at the end. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Guys, I can't wait to get to heaven. I can't wait to get to heaven. But let's not miss what Jesus is teaching about prayer. Is that our goal should not be to get out of here. It shouldn't be, well, the world's going to burn and forget about it and just leave it for itself, for its own devices. No, 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 no. Our posture should be, our work should be, our action should be that heaven is coming down. Because that's how the story ends. The story doesn't end with us floating around on 
fluffy clouds in some sort of toga situation and playing harps or whatever that is, right? You know, the comic strips and all that. of That's not heaven. Heaven is here. Heaven is perfected, but it's here. That's how the Bible ends. And so our hope, our, our desire should be to work to bring about that kingdom here and now as God works through us, not in our own abilities, not in our own strength, but that heaven should be coming down. Third, I want you to look at the pronouns here. Look at the pronouns. Now, this is something I think many of us miss. Jesus teaches us to pray. He says, give us. Forgive us. He says, as we also have forgiven. He says, lead us. Deliver us. It isn't give me. It isn't forgive me. It isn't help me to do these things. It isn't singular focused just on me. It is focused on us. This is a prayer about us about the global about the historical church see that jesus is teaching us that that when we make a decision to follow him that's a very individual thing of course right when we say yes to jesus we are saying i'm in on this but don't miss this that once we do that we are joining something larger right and, and think about it this way here at movement church we talk about the pathway right the pathway of us following jesus we say first step for us is is to connect is to be connecting with other believers, connecting with other people. Those relationships are so crucial. That's where it starts. And it goes into that belief stage. The second step is belief, where we make this proclamation, I believe, I, I am here for this. I am saying yes to Jesus. Then we go into this serving place, right, where we're, we're wanting to give of ourselves. We're wanting to, to help make the church work. We're wanting to help make the kingdom a reality on Sundays and beyond. And that fourth stage is where we're saying, I'm going to help other people get this. I'm going to kind of disciple other people. I want to replicate, I want to multiply myself through relationship, through belief, and through serving. And we see this all over Scripture where it's not about us. It's not about me. It's about what God is doing in the church. Don't miss that. Don't miss that. Understand that, that when you say yes to Jesus, you go to the back. The following Jesus is a race to the back line. It is a competition to outserve one another. If you're having trouble with any relationship, whether it be marriage, whether it be family, whether it be friends, whether it be work, the number one thing that I think we should all start with when there is a challenge is to find ways to serve one another. To find ways to serve one another. And finally, I want you to look at this in this prayer. Go to that second slide of the prayer if you would. Thank you. Notice how it ends. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. People will ask me, Josh, does God tempt us? Does God tempt us with evil? And I know in the, in the Bible there are, there are instances where that seems to happen, particularly in the Old Testament. I know reading some of Paul's writing in the New Testament, it appears he talks about the thorn in his side and not being able to go into a place where he felt like he was supposed to. It feels as though there's some opposition there. And honestly, does God tempt us? I don't know because I'm not God and I'm not going to begin to understand God's purposes or ways. But I don't think that God tempts us in the way that at least we consider those things, particularly after Jesus. Because after Jesus, is, there's freedom and there's, we're seen as pure. If we're followers of Jesus, I don't think God's tempting us there. But notice how the prayer ends. The prayer is that we would be not led into temptation because I think there's, the, there's an aspect here that this prayer is ultimately for the desperate. It's for the broken. It's for the losers. 
It's not for the people who have it all figured out. It's not for the people who have things figured out. It's for the people who are lost. Because think about it this way. Left up to your own devices, do you make good decisions? Do you always make good decisions? Do you have regrets? Do you have shame? I think this, is, this prayer, this Jesus is kind of pointing out that, that for us, for us, when we consider how we're supposed to live our lives, we start to push everything back on ourselves, that we become the star of the show. Lead us because we're helpless. Deliver us, save us because we're in trouble. We're in the ditch. And so this prayer that begins with, you can know God, but you can know this incredible God, this prayer that says that we are supposed to understand that this isn't about me. We can see that heaven is supposed to be coming down, and we can begin to understand that, that we need to be led. We need God's deliverance from us. Because in the end, when you leave us alone, we start worshiping something. And usually we worship the first thing that's at hand. So for us, as followers of Jesus, when we think about the countercultural ways of Jesus, we think about the Sermon on the Mount, we say this is not something that we need to follow to achieve something, right? This is not something that if we do all these things, God will love us more. God loves us absolutely, and that is final and complete. So we have to ask ourselves, well, how, how are we going to put our lives around this? How are we going to fight that urge to make ourselves the star of the show? How are we going to put that effort, that attention, that glory back to God? I think it starts. I think it starts by understanding that we, we are owed nothing. We deserve nothing. It starts with this understanding that Jesus is calling us to a life of service. Jesus is calling us life to, a life of sacrifice, of inconvenience at best. And you and I both know that we live in a world today where it's so easy for us to say, well, this, this is on my toes. This is coming in. This is encroaching on me. I can't stand for that. It comes to this point where we say, this is something that is wrong. It goes against my rights. It goes against my preferences. It goes against who I am. And therefore, the sacrifice is too much. And I would say, as followers of Jesus, I'm not saying that we should be the first to surrender. I'm not saying that we should first to just roll over, as we talked about. We've got to get creative about this to resist the evil that's out there. But I do think that we got to get a lot more familiar with sacrifice. We need to get a lot more familiar with putting other people first. Because the countercultural ways of Jesus are there, not so that we can somehow get God to love us more, so that we can experience his full life. Paradoxically, it starts when we put others first. Here in a moment, I want to lead you in the room and also you online in communion. And so if you're watching at home, I encourage you.